but Quinstat was hardly guilty of all the allegations leveled against him. Prius points out that Quinstat believed scripture was not brought into being monergistically, that is, by God or by man alone. He quotes Quinstat, We must distinguish between those who have been snatched away and are in a trance and do not know what they are doing and saying, and between the apostles whom the Holy Spirit activated in such a way that they understood those things which they were speaking and writing. Prius claims that the mechanical idea of inspiration was not only foreign to the dogmaticians, it was loudly and consciously condemned by them. They were opposed to every conception of inspiration which would degrade the writers to the status of inanimate objects, which neither thought nor felt in the act of writing, but to which God imparted revelation as one might pour water into a pail. Quinstat, says Prius, true to form, states the orthodox position in a matter which defies misunderstanding. He says, The holy canonical scriptures in their original text are the infallible truths and free from every error. That is to say, in the sacred canonical scriptures there is no lie, no deceit, no error, even the slightest, either in content or words. But every single word which is handed down in the scriptures is most true, whether it pertains to doctrine, ethics, history, chronology, typography, or onomastic. And no ignorance, lack of understanding, forgetfulness, or lapse of memory can be attributed to the amanuenses of the Holy Spirit in their writing of Holy Scriptures. One aspect of Luther's approach to the Word of God requires elaboration. Currently, a number of Lutherans keep pointing out the fact that Luther, when using the term the Word of God, did not have Scripture in mind, but Jesus Christ. Pelican of Yale has stressed this, as have those who are opposed to biblical inerrancy. Historically, it is true that Luther used the term, the Word of God, when he had Jesus Christ in mind, and he did this frequently. But it would be incorrect to say that he did this all the time. Moreover, there are enough evidences available to prove conclusively that Luther also used the term, the Word of God, to mean Scripture. He also used the word scripture, and there are sufficient evidences to show that he regarded scripture as inerrant. Clearly, Luther knew there are two words of God, the word of God incarnate and the word of God written, and he held both of them to be completely trustworthy. So no one need get hung up on this issue, nor spend time arguing whether on this occasion or that Luther meant Jesus Christ or the scripture when he spoke of the word of God. John Calvin what can be said of Luther can be said also of John Calvin. He held the scriptures in the highest esteem and believed them to be infallible in all their parts. Perhaps the best modern acknowledgement of Calvin's convictions about scripture comes from the pen of Edward A. Dowie, Jr., who was the chief architect of the United Presbyterians' New Confession. His doctoral dissertation covered this question. He says of Calvin that we owe there, the apostles and prophets, writings in scripture, the same reverence which we owe to God, because it has proceeded from him alone and has nothing human mixed in. We ought to embrace with mild docility and without exception whatever is delivered in the holy scriptures. For scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit in which as nothing useful and necessary is omitted, so nothing is taught which is not profitable to know. Dowie says that when Calvin does admit an undeniable error of grammar or of fact, without exception he attributes it to copyists, never to the inspired writer. There is no hint anywhere in Calvin's writings that the original text contained any flaws at all. 
It is of more than passing interest to note here that critics like Charles Augustus Briggs, of whom more shall be said later, constantly criticized Benjamin Warfield as the inventor of the notion that inerrancy belongs to the autographs. He speaks of this as a late contribution brought about by an inability to demonstrate the infallibility of the copies. But Dowie here makes it plain that Calvin, where he does find a difficulty, lays it to a copyist error, and this can mean only that Calvin regarded the autographs as infallible. According to Dowie, neither in these places nor anywhere else does Calvin discuss in detail the method by which the scripture was preserved. This leaves an interesting hiatus in his doctrine. It is interesting precisely because it is always to the text before him, never to the original text of scripture, that Calvin attributes such errors as his exegesis discovers. To Calvin, the theologian, an error in scripture is unthinkable. Hence the endless harmonizing, the explaining and interpreting of passages that seem to contradict or to be inaccurate. If he, Calvin, betrays his position at all, it is apparently in assuming a priori that no errors can be allowed to reflect upon the inerrancy of the original document. Here are Calvin's own words. For if we consider how slippery is the human mind, how prone to all kinds of error, we can perceive how necessary is such a repository of heavenly doctrine that it will neither perish by forgetfulness nor vanish in error nor be corrupted by the audacity of men. The question of authority supplies the dominant motif of Calvin's doctrine of biblical authority as well as his doctrine of faith in general. No hearsay about God can be the foundation of Christian assurance. The divine origin of scripture, the fact that it has come from heaven, is that to which the Spirit gives witness, and this transfers authority from men to God. Does Calvin's belief in biblical inerrancy mean that he held that the mode of inspiration was by dictation? Dowie went into this question also, for there were evidences in Calvin's writings that might lead to such a conclusion. He says, We must now consider whether Calvin's teaching about inspiration, as so far presented, requires the interpretation that Calvin held a mechanical or literal dictation theory of the writing of the Bible. He incontrovertibly did mean literal interpretation in his description of Jeremiah's inspiration, cited above. His emphasis, as seen throughout our study of the miraculous accompaniments of inspiration upon the transmission of the message, in my opinion, add weight to the claim that he conceived the scriptures as literally dictated by God. Most of what today are recognized as idiosyncrasies in style and even mistakes in the text are attributed to the purposes of the Holy Spirit. To this end, the principle of accommodation is for Calvin a common exegetical device for explaining away irregularities that might otherwise, with a less rigorous view of the perfection of the text, be simply attributed to inaccuracies. When he does admit an undeniable error of grammar or of fact, without exception he attributes it to copyists, never to the inspired writer. There is no hint anywhere in Calvin's writings that the original text contained any flaws at all. Dowie then asserts that R. Seberg, A. Ritchell, and A. M. Hunter attribute unambiguously a dictation theory to Calvin. These are closer to the truth, but probably the solution of Warfield, curious as it appears at first glance, is the best formulation for doing justice to a certain lack of clarity or variation in Calvin himself. 
Concerning dictation, Warfield comments, It is not unfair to urge, however, that this language is figurative, and that what Calvin has in mind is not to insist that the mode of inspiration was dictation, but that the result of inspiration is as if it were by dictation, that is, the production of a pure word of God free from all human admixtures. The important thing to realize is that according to Calvin, the scriptures were so given that whether by literal or figurative dictation, the result was a series of documents errorless in their original form. One item in the testimony of John Calvin should be explained. A number of opponents in biblical inerrancy have attributed to Calvin the opinion that he rejected the Petrine authorship of Second Peter. This is important because modern critics not only claim that this epistle was not written by Peter, they also claim that it is a second century, not a first century product. The problem of Petrine authorship, it should be stated, is not a modern one. It has existed in the church for centuries. Calvin was involved in this too. Of Second Peter, he says in his commentary on that book, If it is received as canonical, we must admit that Peter is the author, not only because it bears his name, but also because he testifies that he lived with Christ. It would have been a fiction unworthy of a minister of Christ to pretend to be another personality. Therefore, I conclude that if the epistle is trustworthy, it has come from Peter, not that he wrote it himself, but that one of his disciples composed by his command what the necessity of the times demanded. It is probable that at that time he was very old. He says he is near to death, and it could be that at the request of the godly he allowed this testament of his mind to be signed and sealed just before his death because it might have some force after he was dead to encourage the good and repress the wicked. Certainly, since the majesty of the Spirit of Christ expresses itself in all parts of the epistle, I have a dread of repudiating it, even though I do not recognize in it the genuine language of Peter. Since there is no agreement as to the author, I shall allow myself to use the name of Peter or the apostle indiscriminately. End of quote. From Calvin's own statement, we should note several things. First, he acknowledges that if one accepts Second Peter as canonical, it must be admitted that Peter is the author, simply because the epistle so claims. Calvin would be at variance with modern critics who advocate the viewpoint that someone used Peter's name long after his death, and that this device is acceptable. Calvin says no. Moreover, he makes it plain that Second Peter was written during Peter's lifetime. He refuses to date it in another century, even as he refuses to let it come from a forger who has used Peter's name. It is true, on the other hand, that Calvin had trouble with the language of Second Peter, and it was this that occasioned his suggestion that perhaps the epistle was written by an Emmanuel under the supervision of the aged apostle, in which case it was a genuine product of the apostle. Calvin does not hesitate to say that Allowing for the possibility that Peter had someone write it under his supervision and control, he uses the name of Peter or the Apostle as the author indiscriminately. Thus the faith of Calvin in the inerrancy of Scripture overcame his scholars' questions, and Peter remained for him the true author of the epistle that bears his name. Anyone who reads Calvin and Lutheran compares them with modern writers who deny biblical infallibility 
cannot fail to note the difference between the attitude of the reformers and that of the modern objectors to infallibility. The latter unfailingly seek to denigrate scripture, to humanize it, to swallow a camel and strain out a gnat. The reformers did not react in this way. Their attitude toward the word of God was one of reverence, humility, and positive acceptance of it as both authoritative and infallible. The Westminster Confession of Faith Among the confessions of faith in the Reformed tradition, none ever written is superior to the Westminster Confession in scope, clarity, and precision. Chapter 1 sets forth the doctrine of Scripture. It is called the only infallible rule of faith and practice. From this, some have argued that the Westminster Confession in effect limited inerrancy to matters of faith and practice excluding matters having to do with history, science, and cosmology. The error of this may be seen when two facts are taken into account. One is the entire statement on scripture, which includes two phrases that destroy the limited inerrancy notion. The confession speaks of the entire perfection of scripture and acknowledges the consent of all of its parts. These portions of the definition rule out the notion of limited inerrancy, But more than that, the history of the times must be taken into account. We have noted that during the Reformation period, biblical infallibility was a tenet accepted by both the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformers. It was not central to the dispute that occasioned the rupture. Had it been, the Reformers would have pinpointed the issue and the canons of the Council of Trent, in which Roman Catholics answered the Reformers, would have included a counterblast. At the time the Westminster Confession was adopted, there was no serious challenge to the view of biblical infallibility, and the Confession did not speak to the issue the way it undoubtedly would have had there been such a difference of opinion. No one can deny that in the United States, so far as the Reformed denominations are concerned, wherever the Westminster Confession was the controlling creed, it was understood to mean that the Scripture in all of its parts was without error. This was true of the Northern and Southern Presbyterian Churches as well as the United Presbyterian Church. During the fundamentalist modernist controversy that swept through the Presbyterian Church in the USA, the 1920s were the years of crucial decision. Clarence Edward McCartney was swept into the moderatorship of the Church in connection with this issue. The General Assembly in 1924 voted to endorse biblical infallibility as the official view of the Church. The Assembly did not vote this way as though this viewpoint represented a change of stance and constituted an addendum to the Westminster Confession, but only as a reaffirmation of what had been the standpoint of the denomination historically and of what had been established officially at an earlier date. The evidences to support the contention that the Presbyterian Church in the USA, now the United Presbyterian Church, accepted the notion of biblical infallibility are so numerous that it hardly requires documentation. The former dean of Princeton Theological Seminary, Dr. Elmer Holmrighausen, says this, Few intelligent Christians can still hold to the idea that the Bible is an infallible book, that it contains no linguistic errors, no historical discrepancies, no antiquated scientific assumptions, not even bad ethical standards. Historical investigation and literary criticism have taken the magic out of the Bible and have made it a composite human book written by many hands in different ages. 
the existence of thousands of variations of texts makes it impossible to hold the doctrine of a book verbally infallible. Some might claim for the original copies of the book an infallible character, but this view only begs the question and makes such Christian apologetics more ridiculous in the eyes of sincere men. This statement by Dr. Horighausen clearly illustrates the truth that he was refuting a viewpoint that had once been held but was no longer acceptable. Unfortunately, his statement denigrates those who believe in biblical infallibility and casts them in the mold of stupid illiterates. Thus he says, few intelligent Christians can still hold to the idea. Anyone holding to biblical infallibility makes such Christian apologetics more ridiculous in the eyes of sincere men. Here, Hamrighausen speaks of disbelievers in biblical infallibility as sincere men, and the implication is plain that those who accept biblical infallibility are less than sincere. Moreover, he inveighs against the doctrine of a book that is verbally infallible. Now, if no one held such a view, he would not argue against it. It is plain that Hamrighausen was talking against the common viewpoint of his own denomination that neither he nor a host of others in that denomination could accept any longer. The founding of Westminster Theological Seminary was a protest against what was happening in the Presbyterian Church. That the struggle included the nature of biblical truth may be seen from what Edward J. Young, a long-time Old Testament teacher at Westminster, said in his volume, Thy Word is Truth. He said, If the autographs of Scripture are marred by flecks of mistake, God has simply not told us the truth concerning his word. To assume that he could breathe forth a word that could contain mistakes is to say, in effect, that God himself can make mistakes. We must maintain that the original of Scripture is infallible for the simple reason that it came to us direct from God himself. What is true for the Presbyterian Church in the North is true for the Presbyterian Church in the South as well. In 1962, the Presbyterian Outlook published a symposium entitled, Do We Need an Infallible Bible? On the face of it, such a symposium would have no meaning if no one was asking the question whether the Bible is infallible and if no one believed or had ever believed in an infallible Bible. The whole discussion was slanted to present one viewpoint, that of an infallible Bible. Every contributor to the discussion argued against biblical infallibility for the reason that such a viewpoint was formerly believed. The arguments did not deny that the errancy position exists or that it had not been the view of the Presbyterian Church in the South. Rather, they were presented to destroy the belief in an infallible scripture. What stronger evidence does one need to support the claim that biblical infallibility has been the historic viewpoint of the Reformed tradition? American and British Baptists Among the Baptists, the same truth emerges. Until recently, Baptists of the North and the South have held to an infallible Bible. The New Hampshire Confession of Faith states that Scripture has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. The chapter on the Southern Baptist Convention will deal more specifically with the details of the struggle within that denomination relative to biblical infallibility. For the moment, it remains only to make clear that the Northern Baptist Convention, now the American Baptist Convention, 
also held to inerrancy until the latter 19th century when German higher criticism invaded this and other denominations. During the fundamentalist modernist controversy, a continual battle raged between the differing viewpoints about scripture and schism resulted with the formation of two new and distinct Baptist denominations. One was the General Association of Regular Baptists, which dates from 1932. The other, the Conservative Baptist Association of America, which began in 1947. The latter group comprised a number of fundamentalists who stayed within the Northern Baptist Convention after the GARB had come into being. They thought that the overwhelming majority of Northern Baptists believe in an infallible scripture and hope to deliver the convention from the control of the liberals. The Eastern and Northern Baptist theological seminaries were created as conservative institutions to combat the liberalism of the old-line denominational schools such as Crozier, Andover-Newton, Chicago Divinity School, and Colgate-Rochester. Alva Hoovey, president of Newton Theological Institute, which was later joined with Andover to become Andover-Newton, defended biblical inerrancy. He argued against those who said that infallibility in the original scriptures requires for its complement infallibility in all copies, translations, and some would say interpretations of them. For otherwise, we are told, the benefit of infallibility is lost to all but the primitive readers. But this again is a mistake, for the errors from transcription, translations, etc., are such as can be detected, or at least estimated, and reduced to a minimum, while errors in the original revelation could not be measured. Hoovey was saying clearly that biblical inerrancy was the common viewpoint, but it was being challenged. And he responded to those who offered that challenge. He pursued this theme by alluding to questions of historical and scientific errors. Hoovey said, On the supposed historical errors of the Bible we remark, 1. They relate for the most part to matters of chronology, generally numbers, etc. 2. Transcribers are specially liable to mistakes in copying numbers, names, etc. 3. Different names for the same person and different termini for the same period are quite frequent. 4. Round numbers are often employed for specific. Making proper allowance for these facts, we deny that historical errors are found in the Bible. He also dealt with so-called scientific errors, saying, All references to matters of science in the Bible are 1. Merely incidental and auxiliary 2. Clothed in popular language and 3. Confirmed by consciousness, so far as they relate to the mind. Remembering these facts, we say that the Bible has not been shown to contain scientific errors, astronomy, geology, ethnology. Bearing in mind these facts, it will be impossible for us to find in the Bible any contradictions which mar its excellence. What has been said about the Baptists in the United States can also be said of the Baptists in Great Britain. They believed in biblical infallibility, although the same retreat from infallibility was to become serious in the 19th and 20th centuries. The famed Charles Haddon Spurgeon was deeply involved in the changing fortunes of the Baptists as they moved away from a belief in inerrancy. Spurgeon, who was undoubtedly the best known and most popular preacher of his age, bore witness to the traditional view of the Bible. He delivered a sermon in 1855, a part of which was devoted to biblical infallibility.
He said, Then, since God wrote it, mark its truthfulness. If I had written it, there would be worms of critics who would at once swarm on it and would cover it with their evil spawn. Had I written it, there would be men who would pull it to pieces at once and perhaps quite right too. But this is the word of God. Come, search ye critics and find a flaw. Examine it from its genesis to its revelation and find an error. This is a vein of pure gold, unalloyed by quartz or any earthy substance. This is a star without a speck, a sun without a blot, a light without a darkness, a moon without paleness, a glory without a dimness. O Bible, it cannot be said of any other book that it is perfect and pure, but of thee we can declare all wisdom is gathered up in thee without a particle of folly. This is the judge that ends the strife where wit and reason fail. This is the book untainted by any error, but is pure, unalloyed, perfect truth. Why? Because God wrote it. Ah, charge God with error if you wish. Tell him that his book is not what it ought to be. Blessed Bible, thou art all truth. Perhaps the strongest evidence that Spurgeon was not parroting a new teaching when he proclaimed biblical inerrancy may be seen from what was happening in Britain after Darwin's Origin of the Species had been published and public fancy had responded to its ideas. The Baptist Union was a very free and liberal organization which did not attempt to hold any person very strictly to doctrine or creed. Yet many of the strongest preachers in the Baptist denomination in and about London were members of that association. In the membership there were also a number of pastors who taught in their pulpits some of the modern ideas of science, so-called, and who advocated the theories of higher criticism and a more liberal and loose construction of the Old Testament records. Upon this subject, Mr. Spurgeon wrote, No lover of the gospel can conceal from himself the fact that the days are evil. We are willing to make a large discount from our apprehensions on the score of natural timidity, the caution of the age, and the weakness produced by pain. But yet our solemn conviction is that things are much worse in many churches than they seem to be and are rapidly tending downward. Read those newspapers which represent the board school of dissent and ask yourself, how much further could they go? What doctrine remains to be abandoned? What other truth to be the object of contempt? A new religion has been initiated which is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. And this religion, being destitute of moral honesty, palms itself off as the old faith with slight improvements. And on this plea usurps pulpits which were erected for gospel preaching. The atonement is scouted. The inspiration of scripture is derided. The Holy Ghost is degraded into an influence. The punishment of sin is turned into fiction and the resurrection into a myth. And yet these enemies of our faith expect us to call them brethren and maintain a confederacy with them. Spurgeon's words portray what the situation was among Baptists in his day. They indeed were turning away from the old faith. But their turning is itself a witness that the old faith included full confidence in the totality of Scripture. And this was the witness of Spurgeon who continued to believe in biblical inerrancy. Moreover, he bore down on the consequences that always follow disbelief in the full reliability of the Bible. This disbelief leads inevitably to the denial of many of the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. 
whatever these new style Baptists believed, and however much they departed from the old benchmarks, their departure witnessed to what had been the common viewpoints of the English Baptists. The Angelicans and the Methodists What has been said of the Reformers and of the Baptists may also be said of the Angelicans and the Methodists. But they came out of a different tradition, and their views must be understood within that context. The Angelican Church came into being as a direct result of Henry VIII's marriage dilemma with Catholic Catherine, whom he wished to divorce. When the papacy refused to accede to his desires, Henry broke with the Pope and established his own church. But that church stood then and remains in the tradition of Catholicism. It traces its apostolic succession back to the apostles and believes, as Roman Catholics do, in the historical episcopate. It accepts the real presence of Christ in the sacrament of the supper and, in a number of ways, stands within the tradition of Roman Catholicism. Among the doctrines it inherited from the Roman Church was its view of the Bible as the infallible Word of God. It rejected some of Rome's teaching, such as those of the seven sacraments, the headship of the Pope, and the like. But it did not declare itself against the Roman Catholic Church's teaching with respect to biblical infallibility. It followed this doctrinal teaching until it, like so many of the denominations that sprang out of the Reformation period, discarded it in the late 19th and 20th centuries. There are still some Orthodox Angelicans who stand in the tradition of Evangelical Christianity and still believe in an infallible Bible. The Methodist denomination came from the loins of Angelicalism and its founder, John Wesley, lived and died within the fold of the Angelican faith. In America it has bishops but does not trace its own holy order through the Angelican Church back to the Apostles. Like the Angelican Church, Methodism believed in an infallible scripture. Neither the Angelicans nor the Methodists enshrined their belief in an infallible scripture in creeds and confessions with the precision and accuracy that marked those of the Reformed tradition, the Baptists and the Lutherans. This may also explain why it was that the Angelicans and the Methodists were the most easily led astray from a commitment to biblical infallibility and why these two groups in our generation include among their numbers large bodies of theological liberals whose theological beliefs are quite extreme. George A. Turner of the Evangelical Asbury Theological Seminary wrote this about John Wesley. Wesley believed in the full inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. His view would not be described as pre-critical as would the view of most 18th century writers. The problem of authority which Luther faced was less acute in Wesley's day than the problem of indifference in the church. Thus Wesley was less bold than Luther in determining the relative value of different books of the Bible. To him they were all equally inspired and hence authoritative. He did not feel the need of establishing the authority of the Bible or defending it from destructive critics. Jean Astrick, the father of Pentateuchal criticism published his views on the authorship of Genesis in 1753, but there is no evidence that it was noticed by Wesley and his colleagues. End of quote. Wesley's own view of the Bible was a high one indeed. He never believed for a moment that because the writers of Scripture were human, they therefore erred in what they wrote. In his journal, he wrote, 
Nay, if there be any mistakes in the Bible, there may as well be a thousand. If there be one falsehood in that book, it did not come from the God of truth. It would be inaccurate to suggest that Wesley spent much time on the question of biblical infallibility. He believed it, and so did those who became Methodists. He preached, taught, and labored on the basis of his underlying conviction that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Among the Angelicans and the Methodists today, there are strong defenders of biblical inerrancy, just as there are strong opponents of that viewpoint. And no one can suppose for a moment that either of these denominations now or in the discernible future will become strong advocates of inerrancy. The Conclusion of the Matter This survey of biblical inerrancy in the history of the Church could be extended indefinitely. There are all kinds of material available to show that the Church through the ages has held to an infallible Bible. This truth can be stated negatively as well. There is no evidence to show that errancy was ever a live option in the history of Christendom for 1800 years in every branch of the Christian Church that had not gone off into aberrations. It can also be said that what was true for 1800 years is no longer true today. In the last two centuries, inerrancy has become a live issue, and increasingly there has been a turning away from this belief until the point has been reached where it is safe to say that a great proportion of scholars and ministers in the Christian Church, in all of its branches, no longer hold to biblical inerrancy. However, there has been a strong evangelical stand in the Church that has held to inerrancy in the last two centuries. Among these people were men like Spurgeon, B.B. Warfield, Charles Hodge, J. Gresham Mason, Edward John Carnell, as well as a host of scholars who are members of the Evangelical Theological Society today. In recent years, Evangelical Christianity has been infiltrated by people who do not believe in inerrancy. This penetration into the Evangelical spectrum is my deep concern. Having laid a foundation to demonstrate that the church historically has been committed to biblical inerrancy, I must now show that among evangelicals who have carried on this long tradition, there are evidences of concessions and departures that require attention. So I now will paint the picture of what has happened among denominations and parachurch groups that long have been committed to evangelical truth and biblical infallibility, but who now have begun to stray from that viewpoint. Page 72, Chapter 4 The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Battle The three largest Lutheran bodies in the United States are the American Lutheran Church, the Lutheran Church of America, and the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Of the three, the Missouri Synod, as I shall call it, has been the most orthodox. Across the years, it has remained faithful to its tradition, and part of that tradition has included a strong conviction that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. But things have been changing in the Missouri Synod in recent years, and the denomination is currently embroiled in a controversy that many have labeled a battle for ecclesiastical power. In a sense, that is true. It is a war for the soul of the denomination and the control of it by parties of varying persuasions. Charges and countercharges have been hurled back and forth involving the dissidents, the moderates, and the conservatives. What does all of this have to do with the present struggle over the inerrancy of the scriptures? 
Missouri's Basic Question It is true that the Missouri Synod has been shaken by an ecclesiastical battle. It is true that people on all sides of the controversy have said and done things that do not measure up fully to the ethical principles laid down in the scriptures. It may be true that some of the people in the controversy have ulterior motives, whatever they may be. Perhaps there has never been a church controversy that has not brought forth the worst in many people, and no ecclesiastical battle has ever been waged in full accord with the teachings of Jesus. Defective human nature makes sure of that. But when due allowance has been made for all of this, no one can fail to see that a theological question is at stake in the struggle, and the key doctrine in the struggle is biblical inerrancy. The historical critical method form and redaction criticism, etc., all have a role in the battle, but they are subsidiary. They simply express methodologies that are secondary to the primary question, is the Bible completely trustworthy in its entirety? Martin E. Marty on Lutheran Creeds Martin E. Marty, professor of the history of modern Christianity at the University of Chicago and also associate editor of the liberal Christian Century, wrote a pamphlet entitled Lutheranism, a Reinstatement in Question and Answer Form. In his discussion he asked, Don't the confessions or creeds define Lutheranism? His answer to this question is, Indeed they do, but they define it in a special way. In effect they say, this we believe, and not, this you must believe. It is true that some Lutherans use them to build fences, to rule out heretics and the Orthodox in, to enforce loyalty. End of quote. In speaking about what Lutherans believe, Marty goes on to ask the truly important question, whence do Lutherans get their religious data? He then says that it is the Bible, which Lutherans regard awesomely, to use his own word. Lutherans yield to no other Christians in their regard for its authority. Lutherans believe that the Bible is divinely inspired, that in some special way God saw to it that the humans who wrote it, without stepping outside their own personality and style, imparted his own truth. They believe that it is infallible and unerring in its setting forth of all that one needs to be made right with God scriptures will not mislead believers. Some Lutherans go a step further and speak of the Bible as being inerrant in the sense that its details are unfailingly accurate even when they talk about matters of geography, of history, of science. Most Lutherans do not begin with such statements, however. They adhere to the Bible because it brings them Jesus Christ and speaks with authority to them in matters of faith and hope. The two ideas expressed so aptly by Marty lie at the heart of the problem of biblical inerrancy. The Bible and the Creeds In the first place, creeds and confessions always have been used as a touchstone to determine whether one belongs to the group that has constructed the confession or creed, despite the intimation by Marty that they should not. Those who cannot accept the creed or confession are not Lutherans in this case, and there is no reason why they should remain within the fellowship of those who adhere to the confession or creed. The group that holds to the confession or creed has every right, even the obligation, to remove from their fellowship anyone who does not hold to the statement of faith. 
Any Lutheran body that does not use a creed to fence the faithful in and rule the heretics out will shortly lose its distinctive identity. Also Marty, while not saying so in these words, admits that the source of religious data for Lutherans is the Bible. When he does this, he opens up the question concerning whether the Bible can be trusted. For if all of the sources of data disagree with Scripture, then one must make a choice between belief in Scripture and belief in the sources that contradict it. It is here that Marty makes his neat distinction, one that is at the center of the Missouri Synod troubles today. The Bible can be trusted. It will not mislead believers. But he quickly qualifies this statement, which on its face assumes that none of it will mislead believers. He mentions some Lutherans who go a step further and speak of the Bible as inerrant, especially in matters of geography, history, and science. He says that many Lutherans do not hold to a fully inerrant Bible. He intimates here and writes elsewhere that he does not believe that the Bible is free from geographical, historical, or scientific errors. When all is said and done, the Missouri Synod's real problem is biblical inerrancy. The denomination is riddled by voices that deny this doctrine and seek to wrest control of the denomination from those who are determined to preserve this basic belief in the life and the confession of the Synod. Luther and the Augsburg Confession Lutheran bodies confess and use the Augsburg Confession of Faith. This confession does not have a specific section dealing with the doctrine of Scripture. Many sections of it have no particular relevance today for the matters discussed are no longer controversial. The absence of a dogmatic statement on scripture in the Augsburg Confection does not mean, however, that Luther and his followers were unconcerned about the truthfulness of the word of God. Neither Luther nor the Roman Catholic Church, which he fought, had any real dissent about the Bible. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.